Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humor. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modeling can go suck it. Um. <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't know because everything is just fine. London has Browns and Dover Street Market. Milan has 10 Corsacomo. New York has Jeffrey. And Paris had Colette, past tense. In Australia, the multi-brand designer fashion stores to know are Melbourne's Marais and in Sydney, Parlor X. This episode is all about independent high fashion retail, how it works and what it does, what's happening with bricks and mortar stores and why we need them. You're going to meet the brilliant buyer, style setter and retailer Eva Galambos, who is Parlor X's founder. Now, Eva and I are old friends, and you're going to love joining in on this robust and candid discussion about what luxury means today and how the fashion system is changing. Eva is a working mum of two beautiful pint-sized fashionistas. She's art-obsessed. She actually studied art history and collects paintings. But her other big love is retail. She's been at it for, I think, about 20 years. She's an expert on the business of fashion and the changing landscape of retail. So it's her job to partner with the brands that she believes in to present their collections in store and to choose the right stuff to stay ahead in a game that's been turned upside down in recent years by the growth of online and also by the rise of the flagship where more brands are becoming vertical operations. We talk about who decides what's on trend, the purpose of fashion shows and what it's like to go to them, and what happens on a buying appointment and inside the Paris showrooms. We cover the importance of longevity and timeless design, and Eva's really big on that, and what the term investment piece really means. And we do discuss the pressures and the opportunities of online retailing. And of course, we talk about clothes because we both love them. We also ask, what does the word luxury mean today? How has oversupply and what I would say is the oxymoronic concept of mastige affected the way that we view luxury fashion? And here's a quote from Eva. She says, luxury to me always meant something that you held on to forever because of the quality, the craftsmanship and the price tag, but also because it was rare. Are we losing sight of that? This episode is a must for anyone studying fashion working in the business, or just trying to figure out how it all works. And as always, thank you, dear listeners, for your support. I can't believe we're on our 26th episode at the end of season one. I'm loving all the reviews and ratings on iTunes. I want to give a particular shout out to some of our beautiful patrons who are helping me keep this show on the road. 
So thank you to Melissa Singer, who's fashion editor at The Age newspaper, to eco-stylist Alex Van Oss, aka Op Shop to Runway, to Dina Mitchell from Pearl Button Bridal, and to Liz Jackson, who has a gorgeous jewellery brand called Ocean Mantra. All I want for Christmas is you. Well, for you to keep spreading the word. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. Eva Galambas, welcome. Hello. I wonder if you might like to start by just describing where we are. We are in one of the oldest churches in the region of Paddington, built by convicts 175 years ago, convicts and early settlers. I don't necessarily get a sense of spirituality, but I definitely feel that it is a place of worship. And right now we've created it into a place of fashion worship. And glass windows. I mean, it's quite a, for people who haven't seen this space, it's very dramatic. It's sandstone, lofty ceilings, and these incredible stained glass windows that make you feel like you're in a, it's very serene in here. Well, actually, stained glass windows are my favourite aspect of the entire building because it's very rare in Australia to have true original lead light. They're actually called lead light stained glass windows because the light from day to night transitions and when it's daylight outside, it's actually brilliant and colourful and, you know, really exciting to look at from the inside. But then as it goes nighttime, the externals are light and brilliant and exciting. You carry brands like Valentino, Balenciaga, Vetements, Stella McCartney. How do you choose them? I decided a long time ago to represent fashion. So my approach to retailing is that each designer brand that we partner with, it's a relationship. And if I am to represent each brand in the way that it needs to be represented, and that is as an individual brand, then I need to make sure that it doesn't overlap in terms of signature styling and DNA and feel and look. So we house in our portfolio quite an eclectic group of brands that all fall under the luxury banner and maybe the most desirable banner, but they're all very, very different to one another aesthetically. But do you have to choose them to an extent because they're hot right now? I mean, people are To an expecting... extent, yes, 100%. So it's a combination of brands that are extremely desirable because at the end of the day, as much as I love what I'm doing, I couldn't do it if I wasn't making money. So it has to be extremely desirable, but it also has to be edgy and it also has to be paving the way towards new trends and fashion. Otherwise will become irrelevant and otherwise people will be disinterested and they'll move on to the next thing. So we have to have a combination of brands that will stand the test of time, that people will buy as investment pieces, thinking that they'll still be wearing for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years or passing down to their children. But we also need to be combining that with the here and now and what's considered the hot here and now. And I think the way people are dressing today is combining those stars and those elements. What is the hot right now apart from Vetements? There's quite a few others. There's Jacquemus. This is a French brand by a designer who I have come to love very much. I've bought into their very first collection and it's actually the opening show at Paris Fashion Week. His aesthetic is, it's got a sexy feel to it, but it's not overtly sexual in any way. It's more sensual. Um, It's very French. He's young. He's from the south of France. He's really cool. And it's dramatic, but it's wearable. But yet it looks 
a little bit quirky and offbeat at the same time. And there have been a lot of other designers heavily influenced by what Jacquemus is doing. Talking of heavily influenced, I just got back from New York where I was in Bergdorf's and I was looking at the collections in a way that you don't get to see them if you come into an Australian department store. And all I could see was the Gucci influence. There was so yeah. much Gucci it's mirroring everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, I wrote this down, like, must ask Eva about the Gucci effect. Mm. What happens when a brand is so influential that everyone else starts doing it? Okay, well, it's funny you should say Gucci out of all the brands because I've been having this conversation recently as well. So when Alessandro first took over at the helm, I was hugely excited by what he was doing because we realised that this was about to set a brand new wave and direction for fashion. So it felt really exciting. And literally within seeing that first show, I was in Gucci buying a new pair of loafers and I wanted a new scarf and I wanted something else as well. I was so sucked in and I don't even buy things. I buy vintage (laughs) things. I try and shop my wardrobe. I bought the sneakers, the sparkly sneakers. And I was in, I was at Milan Fashion Week and I saw everyone in the Gucci and was like, I can't even hold out. I haven't got the money, but I'm going to spend it. If I haven't got the sneakers, I'm not in fashion. Well, that's right. Right, that's what fashion does. That's what it does. It creates a frenzy. And in that first season, you know, unquestionably, the entire fashion set, and you can see it if you went to New York or London or Paris, you know, during Fashion Week, everyone was wearing Gucci or the fashion set. But then by the second season, it started catching on and it started catching on to the masses. And now if you go to all the Fashion Weeks, it's less and less. And other brands that are a bit more exclusive and probably not as desirable by the greater population is more being desired by, I guess, the true fashion set. Yeah, because the Gucci influence is being felt in Zara and in Mango and in Topshop. They've ruined it. But I did see it coming through in all these high-end collections. Like, everything was embroidered. I I picked up a Mimi shoe and it was embroidered in the same way that the Gucci shoes are. And if it hadn't had the label on it, I wouldn't have even known it wasn't Gucci. But I'm going to challenge you on that. Who did it first? Because Mimi has been doing embellishment and Mimi has had a vintage-style influence since the beginning. I mean, that's Mm. the Prada-esque, you know, Mucha Prada's um, entire take. So who did it first? Was Alessandra actually influenced many years ago you know, so I guess this is the questions that we asked ourselves because personally, if you ask, if you mentioned it about any other brand, maybe, but then uh, Mumu for me feels as if it kind of came first. Well, they all were. They're number 21 shoes. Yes. Everything was covered in all the sparkles. Yeah. And remember when Karl Lagerfeld said of Alessandro, he looks like he's plundered a vintage shop or something, yes. something dismissive like that. Yeah. But it makes me think, what are the ethics of that? And fashion feeds off itself to a certain extent. Yes. And it's very cyclical and yes. we plunder the past and we put it together. Yes. But here's this super successful yes. brand. Gucci's killing it. Yeah. Like they're wiping the floor with everyone else in terms of sales. Yeah. So, yeah, how does it work? And what about that cannibalizing of trends and of other kinds of influences? Well, this is the cycles of fashion that becomes, it's a conundrum because on the one hand, we need it and it's important and it's quite fantastic. But on the flip side, it ruins other people's originality and then it feels as if it seeps into other people's creativity. So it's a double-edged sword. As a buyer, how do you navigate that? And I suppose I'm talking about trends and the desire for the hot thing, but with looking different and standing out in the market and giving something to your customers that they can't get everywhere else. Well, if it is being worn by everybody, then I suddenly don't want to wear it anymore because I like to have what I would think is an original and creative style that I thought of all by myself. I like to put together all sorts of different pieces in an unusual way that gives me my own 
salute to my own sensibility. And I like to think that a lot of my clientele are quite educated in that way. Obviously, not all of them are, because I think when it comes down to fashion and creativity, people want to adopt a style that feels accepted by everybody else. There's those sorts of shoppers and those sorts of clients. And then there's other clients that definitely have their own identity and they know what they like and they know what they want. So for me, I like to work with clients that have a sense of their own style. It's quite interesting to think about fashion in those terms because one of the things that I love about fashion is the idea of self-expression and fashion as art and fashion as personality but one of the things I hate about fashion is the kind of tyranny of trends and what I would say is the stupidity of the pressure of you gotta have like I bought those sneakers you gotta have that or you don't fit in like that to me is actually demented even though I've fallen for it and think about that whole look dressing like oh she's wearing look 14 head to toe yeah yeah to me that's like what is that that's not expression Eva I want to get this back to buying so Mm. I'm sure that many people listening know about the brands that we've mentioned about Valentino or about Stella McCartney, for example. But I think we tend to know less about the system that underpins the retailing of those brands. Talk us through a little bit about how buying works. Buying is definitely more than something that can be taught. And I think that's really important because I really do believe that buying is something that people associate with shopping. So if I'm good at shopping and I dress myself beautifully, I must be able to be a really good buyer. And I kind of so it's not just buying with a giant checkbook. It's not just shopping with a giant checkbook. I do. I want to. I want to dispel that myth. It's unbelievably hard work, and it's not as pleasurable as shopping with a really big giant checkbook. It's not like that because you don't walk out with your shopping bags and then you get to wear it all. It's not like that at all. It's extremely stressful and really hard work, and you have to have not just a level of education behind you in order to be able to do it well, but it's not something that can be taught. It's also inherent. It's a skill. And it is something that you either have or you don't have. Now, I guess you can attain it from experience. That experience comes from retail. You would have to have spent years on the boutique floor with hundreds, if not thousands of different clients with different body shapes and different needs and different age demographics, listening and hearing their conversations about what makes them happy, about what feels good to them, about what their experience needs to be and should be. You need to literally have a Rolodex in your mind of thousands and thousands of questions that have been answered before based on your experience in working in retail. And I truly believe that in order to be a really good buyer in luxury fashion, you need to have this experience behind you. So what do you actually do? So talk us through what a showroom appointment looks like, for example. Okay, so for me, I'm fortunate enough to receive an invitation to a lot of the shows. So there are many cycles to the buying calendar. So twice a year, when you hear about Fashion Month or when you hear about the shows in New York and London and Milan and Paris, these are the theme makers. And then when you arrive to the showroom you already know what that theme is but then looking at the garments up close it looks and feels really differently because what people don't realize as well is that these shows are styled by stylists who have their own perception of what the theme of that season is so yes they've spoken to the creative director or designer and they've given them their thoughts but then they've taken those thoughts and those ideas and they've created a fantasy 
by adding accessories and adding shoes and bags and jewels and, you know, they've turned it into something theatrical. When you walk into a showroom, firstly, there are many, many more items that exist within a collection than just what's been seen on the catwalk. And the way it's styled in the showrooms is either in its stories and its groups or sometimes it's in different, not just fabric groups, maybe it's colour-coded. And then you have to create yourself your own vision of how you want to see that within your boutique or the department store floor or, you know, if you're a buyer of any of these establishments. You have to then decide how it fits in with the rest of your buy, with the rest of the brands that you've seen, whether it merchandises from a colour perspective, whether or not you've already bought too many dresses from another brand. You have to then figure out how best that brand is going to work for you and fit in to the space or to the season that you are buying for. So how often would you go and look at showrooms? So you go to the shows twice a year? I go to the shows twice a year. In Paris and um, Milan? I go to, yeah, I go to Paris and Milan. And then outside of that, I also go an extra two times a season because I have two pre-collections. So what is a pre-collection? I don't even think people know what that is. Okay. I had to look it up once. I still didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And also it's changing all the time. And it now is... they're talking about pre-pre-collections. Well, that's right. So I do pre-pre-collections. Um, pre-collection traditionally was more commercial. So traditionally, the runway collection was meant to be way more theatrical, possibly unwearable to some people. Um, show pieces. Correct, show I mean, pieces. if you think about all that Galliano and McQueen stuff, exactly. it was never even retailed. That's exactly right. But basically, pre-collections traditionally was the more commercial aspect of a collection in its entirety. And the perception of pre-collection was also meant to be an extension of the show collection, even though it came first. I actually just read a thing today where Tom Ford was saying that pre-collections used to be the opportunity to design a wearable, simple pair of plain black trousers. But now they're expecting a lot more theatricality from pre-collections because magazines are reporting on them. There's more attention being paid to them. And so that space has been removed. Well, pre-collections, weirdly, where in fashion has become a trend, which is completely crazy from my perspective as a buyer. And I think because the state of our industry is in a bit of flux, it's not just about pre-collection being commercial. Now it also has to do with deliveries and when the collections drop into store and so this is shoulder season so you'd get yeah but the thing is people like Proenza Schuller or Rodate and others are now actually doing their runway collections during pre-collections which happens to fall at the same time as menswear and couture so the industry is a little bit in haywire and that is why they're saying now that pre-collections need to be a little bit more creative because a lot of designers are actually choosing to have runway collections at that particular time frame Mm. so our industry is a little bit crazy at the moment we're all trying to figure it out because I am a buyer and because I buy into all these collections for me it's very clear as to what's going on but I know I speak to a lot of other people out there who are really confused well the customer is probably thinking what do you mean like where are the seasons where have they gone or is the customer no, the that- customer sort of a, to be honest the customer is oblivious and if you're doing your job right so they should be this mm. has nothing to do with the customer's perception it's more the mechanics of our industry and how people working in the industry can adapt and move forward and evolve and stay relevant okay. it's less about the consumer because the consumer is having the best of all worlds our state of flux our confusion is providing them with more product and better product. The antis are up. We have to be better buyers. We have to be more attuned with what we're doing. We have to be certainly more attuned with what our clients want. So in fact, the opposite. The consumer has never been in a better position than what 
she is or he is right now. It's the industry that's in a state of flux. And as a result, I do see some problems happening in the future. At the moment, the market is saturated. But unfortunately, I believe that a lot of boutiques and even department stores are not going to be able to survive, which ultimately means that there'll be less diversity of product in the marketplace. But right now, while everybody's open and still trading, definitely the consumer is in a better position than she'll probably ever has been in and ever will be in in the future. For you as a retailer, what do you think is kind of the biggest challenge that you're facing right now in 2017? One of the biggest problems is some of the big retail online giants are becoming monopolies. And if they become this level of monopoly, we're going to be a world existing without multi-brand retailers and you're only going to have international online multi-brand retailers and everywhere else you're going to have mono-brand stores. So the high street, which is essentially carbon copied all over the world of just flagships. That's right. So the supply is going to be really, really limited. Imagine you're going to see these beautiful shows online. You're going to see the creativity and then you're going to want to buy it. And you're only going to have a couple of destinations where you can buy it. The choice is going to be limited. So the more and more powerful these online giants become, the less supply we're going to have in the marketplace. And that's going to be a real shame for our industry. And I can see it. I mean, Colette closing. Was I was going to ask you about that. Colette, you know, I shed a tear. I did because... I mean, Colette in Paris was the iconic store. That's right. And I, you know what? She created conceptual retailing. She brought in books. She made an experience. She turned it into a lifestyle. She founded that. She had a vision. And you know what? That vision was so greatly appreciated by so many others all over the world. And it was greatly appreciated by me. I mean, this year marks her 20-year anniversary. You're travelling six times a year? Six times a year. Yeah, so think about it. 12, 24-hour flights. <laughs> Going anywhere from Australia is quite stressful and laborious. Yeah. I just went to New York for three days yeah. and it took me about the same time to get there and back. Yeah. It's really difficult. Well, um, you did it when you, you're a mother of two? Yes. When you were pregnant with Paloma? I think yes. you went three times. I did go three times. I went at four months, six months and eight months and I had to get special insurance for the eight months and some of the airlines wouldn't take me. But in the end, I managed to get back. I was fortunate. I didn't carry very large, so people didn't stop me or question me. I was fine. But weren't you stressed? It sounds stressful. It is stressful. Buying is, <laughs> buying is stressful. Um, so why not? for instance, when eight months pregnant, buy from pictures? Because maybe other buyers would buy like that, but I take my job very, very seriously. And when I represent and collaborate and partner with the brand, I take that very seriously. So for me, buying highlight pieces, buying what's representative and indicative of what the collection themes are is very, very important. Now, I'm buying for the opposite season. I need to touch and feel up close and personal face-to-face, I need to touch and feel the garments. I need to know that the weight is going to be right for our climate. I also, I'm in touch with the clientele. I work Saturday's retail. I hear what the clients say. I know what their foibles and what their issues are. I have to see these collections up close and personal. I need to see what they're like on because otherwise I will have a lot of buying mistakes. And unfortunately in our business, buying mistakes eats into our profits. Is fashion going too fast? Yes and no. I don't think from a trend perspective it's happening too fast. I definitely don't because I think from a trend perspective right now, kind of anything goes. Yes, there are very distinctive trends that are happening, but the trends are seeming to last longer in my personal opinion, whereas 
they were in one season, out the next season. I don't think that's happening anymore. So from a trend perspective, on the contrary, I don't actually think it's happening very fast. I think what's happening very fast is relating to what I do and retailing and also buying. I think sale time is coming around too quickly. I think the consumer now is expecting sale time. I think a lot of the major online retailers are discounting and I think that's causing a frenzy and it's also training the consumer to wait and stall. And if trends are not happening as quickly as sale time and seasons coming in and seasons going out, there's a problem because people are not necessarily needing to buy and to acquire the next new outfit. So we go back to Gucci. Gucci did something very interesting with Alessandro. Like Louis Vuitton, they decided that you are not allowed to discount and you are not allowed to put Gucci stock on sale. From a sustainability perspective, I find the Gucci model very, very interesting. An example being that they just said they're going to phase out fur by 2018 and Alessandro Michele called it not modern. I mean, he's doing cool things in this whole space of like, let's shake up the system. And that idea of no sale... No sale is what we need. I mean, sale mm-hmm. culture is intrinsically linked to this idea of disposability Correct. in fashion. Totally get the stuff agree. as quick as you can, mm-hmm. get it cheap, get rid of it, get the next lot of stuff. And to me, that devalues the garment. It Correct. devalues the product. 100%. At this level, if you're talking fast fashion, okay, that's expected. That's the whole issue with fast fashion. But at this level, we're talking luxury. What is luxury? So is luxury becoming treated like fast fashion? Unfortunately, some of the houses are I'm sorry to say yes and I when I started in this business 17 years ago of retailing because I was 12 years wholesale before that luxury did not mean this luxury was craftsmanship luxury was hanging on to things forever and passing it down luxury was pulling out items in 10 20 years time luxury was maybe you didn't wear it for two years but you would pull it out of your wardrobe and you would hug it like as if it was a teddy bear. Luxury was something that you held on to forever. And because of the quality and craftsmanship and, and price tag. And rare. rare. I mean, you didn't just... That's exactly right. Obviously, luxury is not something that everyone can get their mitts on. That's but right. now we all aspire to it. And what that means is that we're kind of devaluing the idea of it. And I know that's elitist and I'm not suggesting that it would be great to all go back to the Marie Antoinette era when only the richest people in the world could ever get anything lovely. But at the same time, saving up for something special and keeping it. 100%. To me, that's value. Whereas this kind of idea that you can just get more and more stuff that maybe doesn't mean very much to you. I I find that a bit depressing. But I agree with you because I think what's happened is if you're in a situation where every dollar counts, but you do love luxury and you want to save up for your one piece, you want to know, like a work of art, that there are either no others or very few others, and you're certainly not going to bump into anybody walking down the street, that if you're buying into luxury, it is rare. And unfortunately, what has happened now is I think a lot of the big brands are now saying, we want that business to become a billion-dollar business. Well, we want it now to become a $2 billion business. Now, if these big houses are saying that they want their luxury houses to turn into that, what does that mean? It means more supply. But it also means, and I will share the details in the show notes for a book by Dana Thomas, which is called Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. It also means that what you're really buying into is a lot of junk that's branded. So the big brands like Dior, Louis Vuitton, what they did was just get 
swiftly into the key fob and lipstick business. So what they're selling is very small little tchotchkes that you can buy that make you feel that you've bought into the world of glamour because you've got your Dior powder compact or whatever it is, your Dior little thing that sticks on the side of your bag, then you feel like, you you're a luxury customer. You can hold your weight with whoever it is who's the Dior ambassador. But that hasn't got anything to do with the original reason for those brands. You know, But I don't have a problem with that. Don't you? No, I actually don't. I think because I think that there needs to be a bit of a bridge. I do. I think, look, not everyone can own a Dior outfit or a handbag. I think if you were able to save up and buy a pair of sunglasses or a compact and it really does mean something to you, it's a symbol of your appreciation and value for what the brand stands for. Let's get back to this idea of what happens when sale culture becomes an epidemic, this idea of waiting for the discount. How do you as a retailer mitigate against that? Well, fortunately, we do buy quite a few collections whereby we are dictated to by the supplier what can go on sale and what can't go on sale. So there's certain luxury brands such as Celine, who we value greatly because also you can't buy Celine online, which means it feels like a very, very exclusive brand because it is. There are very few stockists in the world. We are very privileged to know that outside their own retailers, we are their exclusive stockists and have been for quite some time. We're very close to the house and we really value our relationship with them. You know when you're buying into a Celine handbag, which is supreme craftsmanship and luxury, that you aren't going to see a hundred of them on the street. And you know for a fact that you'll be wearing a Celine handbag in 10 years to come. Because there's also that timeless element to some of those great designs, Correct. isn't there? Yes. So for me, there's certain brands like that where their classic styles and most of their bags and shoes and even some of their trench coats, you're not allowed to put on sale. And nor should you because they do stand the test of time. So there are certain brands. Saint Laurent is another one. Their classic handbag that has the logo, the YSL logo, you're not supposed to be putting those on sale either. I think listeners would find that very interesting because I don't think that's widely known. Yeah, well, they're considered investment pieces. And but so the, they the brand be. says, actually, yes. to all their yes. retailers globally, you can't do this. Absolutely. So if you see that people are doing it, it's naughty. They're not supposed to be doing it. And it's a difficult situation because global retailing laws says that the suppliers are not allowed to dictate things like prices. But as a partner, they ask you to honour and respect what their desires and wishes are. And I guess for me as a retailer, I take that partnership really seriously. Others don't. And when others don't, it makes us look bad. And this is a major, major issue that I'm finding as a buyer and also as a boutique owner. This is one of the biggest challenges that I'm facing in the industry today. How much has online changed your business? I know it's changed the whole world. Yeah. Actually, our online boutique is doing quite nicely and we're very, very happy with it. So you're speaking to someone who understands both aspects quite clearly. I still cater towards an age demographic and towards a woman who likes to touch and feel their garments and come into the boutique and be serviced by my extremely well-trained um, staff who can provide wardrobe assistance. I mean, for me... Sales is everything. I entered into this industry from sales. So to me, sales and retailing is the number one important job in my business. My sales team are all professionals. You know, everyone wants to talk about the marketing department or the operational and website department. For me, everyone knows I preference my sales team. Retailing in this country needs 
to have a bit of a boost in terms of people's attitude and perception to work in a top level boutique with luxury all over the world is considered a very honorable and prestigious job and it should be in Australia and I certainly know that my sales team feel that working at Parlorex. So they have product knowledge and training that they're able to pass on. When you're buying from an online retailer, you're literally merely buying the product. When you're walking into a bricks and mortar boutique, as long as the sales team are educated enough, you can attain an experience that's invaluable. You can sit there and you can share and you know and, and that's what it's about. It's about building relationships and I think moving forward in an unrealistic world where there's so much social media that feels like so much so many mirrors because it is, when you walk into a Bix and Water boutique, it is what it is. The people are there. So you can tell straight away if somebody's fake or somebody's not fake. And I know that we pride ourselves in, in my boutique on not being fake. We're not going to let somebody walk out if we don't think they look fabulous. My mother used to have shops in Yorkshire. And actually, that's probably how I got interested in fashion as a kid. I used to work in those shops. I was 15, probably, when I first worked in there. And I learned so much from that experience. My mum, if you're listening, hello, mama, is an extraordinary salesperson, not because she could sell anything to anyone, but because she is a really honest salesperson. Yeah. And she taught me, if someone looks rubbish in something, you have to say, get that off. Yes. That is terrible. Yeah. Another example of that is the inimitable and wonderful Betty Halbreich, who I um, have interviewed, who is the personal shopper at Bergdorf's and has been there for something like 40 years. And she's a character. There's a wonderful book she wrote about her memoir. But she has this thing where she's like, with Joan Rivers or whoever is the famous client, doesn't matter who you are, if she thinks you look a bugger in something, she will be like, get your arm out of that sleeve. No. <laughs> and that thing is something that customers trust. Like, yeah, okay, sometimes they want to buy something good. <laughs> Take the money, right? But I think that thing of don't let a person walk out of that store not looking their best, then well, they're going to come back, their friends say, you look amazing. 100%. And obviously we completely and totally agree with that module. However, it's a little bit flawed. That's but right. it's difficult, though, with things like that too because sometimes the client loves the way they look even though you don't necessarily think. Sometimes a client is squeezing into something and all you want to do is say, can I pass you the next size up? But they don't want you to pass the next size up. So you've got to be really careful of that as well. I agree with you. It is about honesty and it is about trust because to win a client for just one sale is ridiculous. It's about retention. It's about them coming back. And it's also about job satisfaction, knowing that you're building relationships. Fashion's all about relationships, actually, isn't it? Yes. Beneath the surface. Yes, it actually is. Because there are a lot of smoke and mirrors and you have to know who your true friends are. And also because there is a lot of socialising. So you want to have fun with people you actually care about all at the same time because it's actually a very stressful industry. So after a hard day's buying... <laughs> in Paris. <laughs> when you're in Paris... <laughs> No, I'm joking. Coming back to that online thing, though. So what are the pressures that come with online, for example? And I'm thinking about... People who come into boutiques, try stuff on, go, oh, that shoe fits, and then go buy it cheaper online. Gutting. I used to have a shop, actually, in Paddington, a much, much more modest empire than Eva's. So I had a little boutique, and I stocked vintage things and then some vintage-inspired dresses that I'd made. And I remember very clearly a customer coming into my store showing me a dress they'd bought somewhere else to wear to a wedding and not buying anything from me, and then telling me that they'd been down the road to Robbie Ingham and tried on the McQueen pumps they thought they would wear, and saying, and now I'm going to go and find them in a sale online. Mm. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's disheartening. Talking about ethical fashion. Ethics can also be about how the consumer carries on, and how does that impact bricks well, and mortar? We don't have that a lot, and we certainly don't have that with we our regular clients, but we definitely 
have that. What's worse, though, is not even that they're trying to look for it cheaper online. It's the fact that they just go into one or two online giants just to see if they've got a different colorway for what happened. And then their prices are less than ours. And what's really disheartening about that, and this is the biggest issue that we face in fashion as retailers, certainly what I'm facing at Parlor X, is that the online giants are undercutting the recommended retail price that they've been given by the supplier. And of course, the customer doesn't really care because the bottom line is the bottom line. They want the cheaper price. We're not going to go to our customer and say, oh, my God, such and such is undercutting retail price. We promise you that this is the price that the supplier has given us. The customer doesn't care. The customer just thinks, oh, you're overcharging us. And actually what they're doing is they're discrediting us in the eyes of the consumer who might turn around and say, well, actually, I don't want to shop anymore at Parlor X because they might be overcharging us when we're not. We're literally charging the recommended retail price that the supplier has given us. We mentioned before that fashion is about relationships and we also mentioned this kind of move towards global juggernauts that now control so many of the big brands and also so many of the big retailers. What has actually happened in the kind of recent history of how the fashion system has evolved is that we're losing those intimate relationships and those local businesses in some cases as we move towards this kind of I guess it's fiercely modern global world, which we can't escape from. But I think we do need to reconnect with the personal and with relationships and with how things are made and with being able to interact with the people who are at the front line of this stuff. That's what gives fashion its soul. I agree with you. That was a speech. (laughs) What do you think Um, about that? No, I I mean, I relate wholeheartedly with what you're saying. Because also that's how it stops stuff just being stuff. That's right. That's exactly right, because there's a story behind it. When you're buying into an item... You're actually buying into the history. So I recently was approached by a great new designer brand. Very cool, very new. The prices are really expensive. I mean, they're the same prices as our luxury houses that have maisons of 50 to 100 years. And when I responded saying, you know, I love the aesthetic, it looks really interesting, but your prices are very, very high and they're the same prices as X, Y, Z, how do you justify that? And they said, oh, but, you know, this is what it costs and, you know, other people don't have a problem with it. And I said, well, I kind of do because I feel as if my client, if they're going to pay this amount of money, they want the history of the maison, they want the story that goes with it, not that it's the same price as a brand new brand that started literally one year ago Mm. and I do believe that the you know who also has let's say a marketing budget behind it and also has the force of recognition and you know an identity so I have it you know I do believe that unless the brand is offering something phenomenal from a craftsmanship perspective I do find it a bit strange that some of the new up-and-coming designer brands think it's appropriate to be charging the same prices where's value lie for you then Eva how important is it to you how something has been made very important For me, it's everything. It really is. I mean, it's relative. If I'm investing in something that I believe that I'll only be wearing for a season or two, then I'm happy to pay less. If I'm investing in something that I expect to own for a very long time and possibly even pass down, I have less of an issue because for me, that's value in money. And also, it can't just be a trend of the moment. So I don't mind if it's quirky because I do have a bit of a quirky aesthetic and I do love that as long as I truly believe that I'm going to be wearing it for a really long time. So Comme des Garçons is a really good example because I've been buying that brand now for almost 10, in fact, 10 years more. It's one of my favourite brands. It was actually my favourite designer and first recognisable designer brand that I loved as a teenager 
growing up. I was a very um, sophisticated teenager. Yeah. I was obsessed with the Japanese designers, but particularly Comme des Garçons. So when we first brought Comme des Garçons into Parlor X almost 10 years ago, it was one of the highlights of my entire career. But this is a brand that I still have pieces from there and I still wear. How can you say that about many other brands? A teenage Eva aspired to Comme des Garçons. <laughs> How did you get into fashion? I know you actually studied fine art and wanted to be a curator. What was it about fashion? Or was it art history? What did you study? No, I, I did. I, I did study art history because when I, as soon as I absolutely possibly could, which is 14 and nine months in Australia, I went and got myself a job working in a luxury shoe place. I didn't know that. Yes, did you? Yes, in the city. What's with 14 and nine months? Because that that's the, the legal age that you're allowed to be employed in Australia. But I was probably one of the very few kids in my school that did that. But I fiercely from a very young age wanted my independence this was one of my questions. Why fashion? Was it to your mother in her denim hot pants? <laughs> <laughs> okay, can we not? <laughs> um, when I was a young teenager, it was grunge. And I don't mean trend grunge. It was grunge where it all first began, where we went to school and we poked holes through our jumpers, much to our parents' dismay. We tore into those jumpers. We walked around with stockings that were also had tears and holes in them. An old nighty from Vinnie's. An old nighty's from Vinnie's. And we were, it was it was anti-fashion, and anything branded was embarrassing. Anything, you know, we were the type of kids as well. They say your mum would say, "Come and get into a photo," and we'd be like, "No, no, not us." We we're like, "No, we don't want to be." As opposed to now, where the kids are fighting. No, take a photo of me. Take a photo of me. You know, I grew up in an era where being overtly and aggressively self-loving was considered vulgar and, and attention-seeking. We also, same, like we were also teenagers when there was, it was pre-logo mania because that kind of came in the 2000s, I think. Yeah. Or post and pre because it was yes. 80s and the 2000s. Yes. But in the 90s, no logos, thank no. you. No, we, were, we grew up in the 90s where what society is teaching our children today is the antithesis of the messaging back then. And you know what? As a mother of two small children, I can't wait for the trend of the 90s of what we grew up in to have its revival because I really want my kids to be that kid that's not fighting for the limelight but discreetly, very discreetly and humbly, you know, accepting of their accomplishments. During my studies and at university, I thought I wanted to be a curator. I always wanted to work in the world of the arts, always, since I was a little girl. My father's also an artist and, you know, it's something I've always appreciated and valued and have always gone to galleries and I tried to take my girls as often as possible as well. But when I was in my very early 20s and after university, I actually worked for the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Sydney as when they first opened. Were you a tour guide? I was a tour guide. I love it. Um, I was. Needless to say, when I moved to London... I thought I was going to get a job in a gallery. Yes, that was never going to happen because back then the perception of Australians were that we were still kind of convict-esque and, um, you know, what level of sophistication could we possibly have or what contribution to the art industry. So I had a lot of doors slam in my face. So what did I do? I went back into retail because I'd been in retail for many, many years and actually I got my very first job working for the Armani Group. So I worked for Mr Armani and I worked in their very first Brompton Road store and I was trained and I worked my way up and I worked, I met him, I did weekend workshops in Italy. I had quite an interesting career start and I decided to remain in fashion and whilst I was in London, I moved into wholesale. So I was wholesale and retail for a long time. Can fashion be art? 
When I first started and opened Parlorex, it was with the idea of opening a gallery-style boutique. And what I meant by that, especially in those days, and I still mean it today, is I wanted to represent and to stock collections and pieces that are seen as works of art, that they will stand the test of time. In fact, they may even appreciate in value that they have a period in history, that they are unique in some special way, a highlight piece. Are you still wearing garments that you've had since you were yes. beginning your career? Yes, absolutely. As like I said, what? Comme des garçons. I still wear low drop crutch pants that they keep producing. Yeah, but you're wearing new ones. Do you have some old no, I pieces? Do. Are you of course, Vivian wearing... Westwood. What do you mean, Vivian Westwood? So back in the day when I lived in London and I first discovered Vivian Westwood and the whole concept of punk and Malcolm McLaren, which, you know, again, like, you know, I'm also a vegetarian. So the concept of sustainability and also the fact that she would never do fur and her political slogans, that resonated high with me. I was a young, I was in my early 20s. Of course, that was very, very important. So I have Westwood pieces. I have a velvet cape that I still have. I bought it at a sale in London and I still have that piece today. Talking of those kind of political renegades who are fashion leaders, you stock Stella McCartney. Yes. How important to you is the messaging behind what she does as opposed to how it looks because you've got to sell it? Like, Who shops for Stella McCartney and for what reasons? The person who shops for Stella McCartney is a person who values and appreciates a combination of fashion and directional fashion because Stella's very edgy but also who really appreciate the sustainability aspect as well. Do they care? They do and I kind of consider myself to be one of those people. So I wanted Stella McCartney years before I actually had Stella McCartney in Parlor X. Because of that, it was very important to me to have that balance and I felt it was very important to our portfolio to have a brand, another brand, as well as a brand like Comme des Garçons that also doesn't do fur. So we've never done fur in Parlor X. I refuse to ever. And in fact, no one in my team is actually allowed to wear it to work. Very modern, says Alessandra McKelly. Well, we've been doing this for 17 years, but thank you very much. <laughs> um, and in fact, I buy Fendi and they know in the Fendi showroom to never, ever oh, show me. Fendi. And they, they know they're not allowed to show me but fur. But Fendi is a fur house. And yet they don't show me fur and I don't go near any of the fur. And I actually can prove to everybody else that Fendi can be bought without fur. Mm, fascinating. I definitely believe that more and more designers and design brands and houses are going to adopt the sustainability approach. They have no choice. I want to just finish up by asking you about Australian designers and also about how young designers can cut through and what advice you yeah. might give them. So I know you don't stock many Australians, but you do some. Romance was born is very important to me. Apart from the fact that they're my friends because we've been there from the very beginning, judging collection shows and what have you, it's more than that. These guys have a point of difference. They have a voice. Also, they have a very, very, very arty connection, which obviously is very close to my heart in what I appreciate and value. When you say arty connection, because they worked with Del Catherine Barton, who's a very celebrated Australian painter. I mean, they used their first collection. They asked if they could use her paintings as prints. And she said yes, which is radical. I mean, they were just out of college, weren't they? I know, but interestingly enough, she said yes to their latest collection. And it's been a revival. Ten years later. Yeah, yeah, and they've become great friends. And, in fact, I met Del via Anna and Luke. So I really appreciate what they do because I think they have a voice that's original. But they're a brand that I absolutely feel confident to back because they have a unique voice. Another unique voice for me is Tony Matuszewski. 
if you look at his creations and designs, you never see referencing. It's him. You know, he, it's identifiable in the same way that Romance is Born is identifiable. Now, for me, a new brand or being interested in a brand, it has to be about a point of difference. It has to be about being original. If you're emulating a trend, that's fine. But straight out copying, we're not stupid. We're buyers. Like we're there. We're seeing the collection in the flesh. We're not just seeing it in the flesh in the showroom. We're, we're actually at the runway show and seeing it too. You can't fool us. And we're not going to want to buy a ripoff or a knockoff version of the original when we actually stock the original. So it seems really foolish and silly for any designer to think that they can break into the marketplace and want to be sitting alongside these brands when in fact we have the original versions. On the other hand, if you are clear about where you're positioned in the marketplace, if you don't want to sit next to luxury and you want to sit next to contemporary, contemporary means the quality of production is still there, but it's probably a lesser price point and you're aligned with other brands like Acne and Carven, um, really cool brands, but it's not elevated, elevated. So, you know, it's more accessible. And, and I think especially in Australia, a lot of new brands should try to more align with contemporary because it's more suited to our climate, it's more suited to our sense of casualness. And I think being really realistic about that, but you still can't appropriate, you still can't copy because it's silly. We get it, we see it, we know it. Three things that will, in your mind, characterise the future of fashion. How are you going to answer that with no preparation? Here you go. Okay. (laughs) Okay, sweat from the brow. I truly believe the trend to no-name fashion is going to come back because of the oversaturation of brands. I think that our industry is in a state of flux, but we haven't hit rock bottom. I think rock bottom is still to come, and then there's going to be a massive shift of what our industry actually means and how people are going to be able to survive. And I think new social platforms and how social media is going to manifest is going to also define our industry and people's spending habits in terms of consumerism. Social media already is defining people's purchasing power, what they want to purchase, what they don't want to purchase, and also the avenues in which they want to purchase. All right, what's your favourite hashtag? I don't have one. Come on, you're an Instagram person. I'm not really. My business is, is it hashtag Insta- Palorex. Yeah, okay, hashtag Palorex. I'm not really. My, you know what? Honestly, like, I'm not actually an Instagram person. My business is. So from that perspective, it's very important to me. But I have to be really honest with you. If I thought about Instagram to the same extent that everybody else did, I wouldn't get any work done. I couldn't visually be out there in the real world looking. You know, I sit at the shows and I watch everybody else on their phones. How can I actually watch the show? And how can I absorb and take in the appreciation of what I'm looking at? So I don't do it. So I'm a little bit of a dinosaur that way. Holding up iPads so you can't see. I know. That's what they do. Oh, I've had to tell people sitting next to me or I've actually elbowed people sitting next to me. I'm sorry. I know that's (laughs) embarrassing to admit. But you know what? It's really unfair. I'm here for a purpose. I've waited a long time. For a five-minute show, you're, you're there for 20 minutes beforehand. Stop taking selfies. Stop taking selfies. That's the end. <laughs> Thank you, Eva Galambos. <laughs> oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, Montaigne.